This is News Talk on the VOCM Bigland FM radio network. The views and opinions on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your News Talk host, Linda Swain. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Not Linda Swain, Richard Duggan in with you this afternoon. And... Buys, oh, buys, it has been uh, a slow news day. Nothing happening. No, I'm just joking. There's a lot of stuff happening today. Uh, we have budgets. We have news conferences. Then we have even more news conferences. Uh, there's just a lot on the go today. We've been running around uh, keeping you appraised of everything that's going on. Uh, coming up a little bit here on the program, we'll have comments from NAEP. Uh, and that's in response to the RFP that government sent out uh, last week in regards to uh, the ambulance integration, specifically air ambulance. Um, so we'll hear from Jerry Earl on that. And then just after that, um, I was at Confederation Building a little while ago to get reaction from Health Minister Tom Osborne um, as well. Um, do want to mention this? The nomination period just closed uh, for the Liberal Party for Conception Bay East Bell Island. So we're going to keep a close eye on that and see if uh, they either announce a nomination uh, or who their candidate is going to be or if uh, maybe they call a, a news conferences or if they uh, decide to announce in some other way who their candidate may or may not be. So we're going to keep our eyes on that as well. Uh, but first... It's budget day in the city of St. John's. VOCM's Brian Callahan has been down at St. John's City Hall all afternoon uh, covering that, and he joins me now. Brian, welcome. Hey, Richard. How are you? I'm good, and you have been extremely busy, and I've covered <laughs> I've covered these budgets a few times before, and it's a lot of numbers. It's a lot of pouring through books. Yeah, I got a couple of decades in, and I got to be honest, Richard, I go back to the old saying, I didn't, uh, I signed up for journalism because I was told there'd be no math. And uh, boy, did they ever lie through their teeth. Yeah, a lot of crunching numbers there. So let's get down to it. Um, again, there's, there's a lot to go through, but what are some of the big things that our listeners should know about? Yeah, I'll try to simplify the best I can. Bottom line, there is a increase in the uh, mill rate. So the mill rate goes up to one about a 9.1. Now, over time, like throughout the 90s, it was always around 11. It fluctuated down to 10 or 11. Then, you know, early 2000s, stayed low around the 7 and 8 level. Uh, and then creeps crept up again into the 2013 and onward. And so it's always been in this ballpark. But this is an increase, no question. And this goes back to... You know, you'll hear the refrain now over the coverage of the budget. Um, uh, bottom line is pressures, financial pressures that you and I are feeling, Richard, the city is feeling them too. Now, last year they were feeling it as well, and it was a little closer to the end of the pandemic, and people were still able to carry that line and, and blame a lot on the pandemic, and still people can. But last year the city went out of the way not to raise any taxes, property taxes, trying to avoid doing that last year, the mill rate. Um, and they actually dipped into a reserve fund to avoid doing it, just recognizing the burdens that everybody, the financial burdens that everyone was under. This year, it just uh, that was not an option. They've looked at other municipalities, and they put they note that most other municipalities have been raising those rates. In uh, and I'll try to boil it down. I guess at nine point, so it's about a point eight increase in the mill rate, not a full point, but point eight. And what it will mean, say, for someone with a three hundred thousand dollar home or a lost property. Um, about $20 a month times 12 months, $240 a year. And so, and then you have the assessor. So that's just on the mill rate. But um, overall, 
they've noticed that property assessments, of course, are up approximately 3.5%. So you compound that on top of the increase in the mill rate, and you come up with a number of between 12 and 13% of an increase on the average home, on the average property. And again, I just used the $300,000 one as a benchmark, but uh, it's looking at about overall, you know, your property tax bill is going to probably go between 12 and 13%. That's on average. Uh, you know, you have the high points and the low points. That. So that's the main headline out of it, Richard. There is a property tax increase. City's got to do it. Their, incre- their costs are up. You know, they note in one case um, street rehabilitation work. You know, your average paint, uh, patching, grinding, paving. They note a 50% increase in one of those projects recently. And that's just uh, kind of filters out across the board. So their, rev- their increases, their expenses are – sorry, their expenses are up – um, there are revenue increases as well. There are points to, to be, you know, um, uh, the taxes and all the rest, you know, what they bring in. There are no increases in fees of programs and those sorts of things, you know, recreational fees. You won't see any of that. Um, there is a small, very slight increase in the water tax. It's like about $5. You'll see a difference. And outside of that, there is a, a some are calling it a bit of a historic increase in snow clearing. It's a 25% increase over last year, and that's significant in a lot of ways. I mean, it's not, you know, you will, we will see, you and me as uh, homeowners or residents will see uh, an increase only through the fact that a lot of that money is going to be spent on new equipment. And so that'll be a trickle-down effect, you know, once the new equipment comes online. So uh, they're investing in that. They certainly see that need. There are other across the board. I don't know how much time we have. We could go through the whole budget. Um, but there's increase in that in uh, street rehabilitation. One of the other headlines, Richard, that the city doesn't want to talk too much about, and even in a scrum with Ron Ellsworth, who's the city's finance lead, talked about, you know, the St. John Sports and Entertainment. And, you know, hold on to your hats, but it's already at $6 million roughly, the annual subsidy. It's going up by another half million. And, you know, they faced some tough questions on that today. So we're now looking at a $6.6 million annual subsidy. That's up $577,000 in this budget. And, you know, they're basically pointing to the difficulty with trying to get large acts to come back even in post-pandemic. They're seeing them in the larger venues. But getting them here, when you think about the fuel costs and the trip costs, and for larger, big draw events, it's still very hard to get them to, uh, you know, bottom line from the city, they're saying, still very hard to get them to come across that extra level from Halifax to Newfoundland and Labrador because of the costs. Travel is everything, the fuel prices, and the demands on that. Then there's your equipment that you're taking and renting and bringing, and it's it's always been a difficult task to bring a big act here, and uh, it's not getting any easier. No, and uh, a lot of what you just covered uh, in, in your uh, debrief there about this year's budget, those are topics that you know have been there for the last number of budgets. It's a lot of the same uh, issues that that we're seeing, especially now with the you know uh, the post pandemic and and trying to recover from that. One interesting point that, that I wanted to bring up, Brian, that I noticed uh, right at the end of your uh, uh, story that you wrote about this budget is that uh, the city is open to talks about uh, o- or offers on uh, the Mary Brown Center, which is a, a conversation that was a, a pretty big topic a few years ago, and it c- kind of went dormant for a while. 
Yeah, they don't want to. So the way I've, I asked Ryan Ellsworth today in a scrum, I just said, you know, is the city still resistant to the idea? That's the word I used. And he said, we're not resistant. And as a matter of fact, we're open to it. We just haven't, don't have an offer on paper. He said he's never seen one. He doesn't have an offer, which seems to suggest they would still be open. And we understand they've always been open. But the last offer, either it wasn't enough, we weren't entitled, or there were competitive or uh, uh, commercial sensitivities that we weren't privy to all of the negotiations back and forth. And, you know, we know there have been people kicking the tires, but it's still never come to that. But just for the record, you know, it would have been remiss of us not to at least ask a question about it, given that its subsidy is almost $7 million now a year. And I can hear people screaming at the radio where that $7 million could go. I mean, you can't throw it all at housing. We know that's another big issue, and the city goes into depth with their efforts toward affordable housing in the budget. That's not lost on anyone. That is in there. Uh, but the city doesn't hold direct responsibility for building those units. You know, they're responsible for working on a framework with the federal government and other organizations to be able to provide that housing. But that's the other thing I should mention, Richard, too. You know, you mentioned that, you know, a lot of these things are recurring and similar. Well, that's the nature of the beast, I guess. It's a budget, municipal budget, and they have to talk about snow clearing, and they have to talk about street work, and they have to talk about all those other things and traffic and all the rest of it. But really, the bigger picture here that will come out is, you know, the city just came back, um, Deputy Mayor O'Leary just came back from the Federation of Canadian Municipalities meetings, where the big talk is a complete overhaul of the framework for municipalities, given the different pressures that they're facing. There's, they're still looking at the same blueprints of the 70s and 80s, and clearly, you know, with climate change and other incentive and other issues that are on the top of municipalities' um, to-do lists beyond just you know, providing basic services, is they're, they're, they're saying they're, it's just not going to work. It's not sustainable. It's not feasible. Uh, municipalities are facing different pressures, and the federal government has come to the table and recognized that, and they're fighting for a completely different framework on how to fund the different pressures that they're facing, increases in pressures that they argue they shouldn't have to because some of it may well be the cause of federal legislation. VOCM's Brian Callahan, not just wearing the hat of reporter today, but mathematician as well. Thank you for this. <laughs> we'll go that far. <laughs> Thanks, Richard. I'm sure there'll be calls about my math, but hey. There I'll you go. <laughs> VOCM's Brian Callahan live down at City Hall. And of course, we're going to have coverage of the St. John's budget uh, all throughout the evening here on VOCM and tomorrow morning on your VOCM mornings. All right, and now not only is uh, the St. John's budget coming down today, but also we're watching now for details on the Mount Pearl budget. Um, I know that VOCM Sarah Strickland is on that as well, and uh, we'll have those details as they become available. Uh, so stay tuned throughout the evening as well uh, for more details uh, once we have them on the Mount Pearl budget too. All right, we're going to take a break here now on News Talk, and when we come back, we're going to bring you comments from Jerry Earl about air ambulance. Don't go away. This is News Talk on your VOCM. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. And welcome back to the program. Richard Duggan in with you this afternoon. And now we're going to go to a news conference that was held earlier from NAEP. Uh, NAEP's Air Service Bargaining Group is postponing negotiations with government. Uh, this comes following a government announcement of an RFP for the integration of ambulance services, which includes privatization of air ambulance of 
air ambulance services. The collective agreement has been expired since March of 2022, so about a year and a half now. VOCM's Noah Shepard was at a news conference with NAEP earlier. Here's some of what was said. The team and our union represent 66 members of the Air Service Bargaining Unit. For those who are unfamiliar, the public sector workers in this bargaining unit provide air and ground support for our province's air ambulance and water bomber programs. They are dispatchers. They are engineers. They are aircraft mechanics. They are avionics technicians. They are pilots. They are highly specialized, highly sought after, and highly trained. They fight forest fires, air and abroad, and they support and fly our air ambulance and neonatal transport teams in our province. Some of these members are new. Some have come back to our province to apply their skills here at home. And some are seasoned veterans who have worked for this province and its people for many years. They are public servants. They deserve the people of the province. They serve, sorry, the people of the province above all else. When danger strikes, when minutes matter, when lives are on the line, these members are the first always to step forward. Last week, a few weeks before Christmas, these members were informed that the Air Ambulance Program would be privatized as part of a request for a proposal to integrate the province's paramedicine programs. What a kick in the guts to these dedicated and passionate workers. And I can tell you, it has sent a chilling message to the many other public sector workers across this province, not only in healthcare, but in other sectors. This announcement came as a shock to these members and their union, especially in the wake of the Premier, publicly and on record in both media and in the House of Assembly, saying that he would not privatize healthcare in this province. And I quote, privatization of healthcare is never something that I've been contemplating. I'm not sure where the thought comes from that we're interested in privatizing healthcare. Nothing could be further from the truth. Records released under an access to information request, ATIP, in 2021 showed that the private air ambulance system is far more expensive on a per patient basis in the public than in the public system. Nearly five times more expensive. In 2020 and 2021, NAEP presented concrete recommendations and solutions to the government and to Health Accord NL team on how to strengthen and improve the public air ambulance service. That submission is in your kits and can be made available electronically. We offered solutions. We brought forward solutions presented by frontline workers almost three years ago. They amounted to hiring three additional pilots, leasing a plane, and providing cleaner lines of resource management, dispatch, and decision-making. Those recommendations, unfortunately, were ignored. Instead, it is clear that government has decided to go the privatization route and pass the buck like those they've done before. But we know where that path leads. When profit comes before people, something has to give. Our union stands steadfast against the privatization of public services because we have been seen elsewhere what happens, what the outcomes, lack of transparency, 
accountability, service delivery, good jobs, and a cost to taxpayers. There is simply no place for profit motive in our healthcare system. The people of this province need to know that when they need healthcare services, that their care, health, and well-being are the number one priority, not the bottom line of some faceless corporation. This morning, our bargaining team was supposed to meet with government to continue collective bargaining. However, here we are this morning to announce that we will not be returning to the bargaining table at this time. We'll postpone bargaining while we plan our next steps, both in terms of government and public relations and collective bargaining. At this stage, we can say that we are considering and in the process of receiving a legal opinion on filing a bar bad faith bargaining complaint with the Labor Relations Board. The right of a union and its members to fear collective bargaining is a constitutional and fundamental right in our country. These rights are enshrined in law. Legislation is put in place to ensure that the system should work fairly for both workers and employers, so that both sides go to the table and bargain in good faith. However, when one side does not follow those parameters, and make all reasonable efforts to reach an agreement, then the balance must be restored. That is what we are trying to accomplish by pausing bargaining and going this route. The government has left us with no choice on this matter. How does the government expect us, expect this negotiating team, in good conscience, go back to the table and negotiate an agreement while almost one-third of the bargaining is threatened to be laid off. The position is entirely untenable at, as it currently stands. The Premier and this government has an opportunity to stick to their word, to do the right thing, and walk back from the privatization of the air ambulance service. We have given them that opportunity. However, if they do not, we will continue to ramp up our efforts to force them to do the right thing here. Today's announcement is a step in that direction. Our message is clear. We will not sit by and watch our public health care system being sold off to private interest. There is simply too much at stake. And there you have it. That's Nate President Jerry Earl responding to government's RFP for the integration of ambulance services in the province, uh, which includes the privatization of air ambulance services. Now, um, in response to what NAPE had to say, Tom Osborne, uh, the Minister of Health uh, with the provincial government, um, he called a news conference uh, a, a short while ago to react to some of what NAPE had to say. Now, we don't have enough time to play it for you before we have to break for the news at 4.30, uh, but stick around uh, after Noah Shepard's news at uh, at 4.30, and uh, we will have uh, some of Tom Osborne's comments for you. Uh, before we go uh, to that newscast, however, I do want to mention um, another news conference that was called today uh, from opposition leader Tony Wakeman. He called in, uh, called us to Confederation Building um, to talk about um, a 
access to information request that his party put forward on some of the, for an update on some of the housing numbers uh, that government has been talking about. And from the ATIP that they received, which um, is for numbers that uh, were accurate as of November 17th, what they're seeing is that housing numbers in the province or the housing situation, uh, including wait lists, has actually, um, the wait lists have grown and the number of units that are unavailable for occup occupancy has also grown. Uh, so here's some of the numbers that Tony Wakeham had uh, given to us earlier. Um, the number of vacant Newfoundland and Labrador Housing Corporation units has grown from 290 in March to 307 as of November 17th. And um, the number of people waiting on a wait list with Newfoundland and Labrador Housing has grown from 2,977 in March to 2,352 uh, as of just a couple of weeks ago. So that's the crux of a news conference that... Uh, PC leader Tony Wakeham had held just a little while ago and we're going to have coverage of that coming up tomorrow morning. I'll have a, a story there, which uh, you can hear in our newscast as well. We'll have audio from what Mr. Wakeham had to say coming up on your VOCM mornings tomorrow morning. All right. Now that that, uh, ha that base has been covered, we will uh, return to comments from Tom Osborne coming up after the news with Noah Shepard here at 4.30. Um, as well, coming up after the break, we're going to talk to you about something a little different that's happening, um, a, what's being touted as a first-of-its-kind fundraiser in the province um, that involves potentially, you could potentially win an electric truck. We'll tell you about who's putting that off and all of the details coming up. After the news with Noah Shepard, this is News Talk on VOCM. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. And welcome back to the program. Richard Duggan in with you this afternoon. All right, so um, earlier, just before the break, uh, we brought you comments from Nate President Jerry Earle in regards to concerns with uh, a government RFP for the integration of ambulance services, which includes the privatization of air ambulance. Well... After that news conference from NAEP, uh, Health Minister Tom Osborne spoke with media at Confederation Building uh, for his response to what NAEP had to say. I was there, and uh, here now is some of what Tom Osborne had to say in response to NAEP. So we are happy to sit with NAEP uh, and work with them to look at uh, ideas, to talk about ideas. Uh, I know we're anxious to get them back to the bargaining table. Uh, we are obviously interested in looking for um, input from them on this. Uh, when we look at the number one recommendation of the Health Accord, and that is the integration of ambulance services in the province, um, that is what is happening. So right now, road ambulance is fragmented. We have over 60 private uh, ambulance providers in the province. Uh, there's no uh, central command, no central dispatch or coordination. Air ambulance is fragmented. There are seven providers of air ambulance in the province, one of those being the provincial government. It's fragmented. It is leading to inefficiencies and, and leading to complaints from various parts of the province. That is the reason the number one recommendation of the Health Accord was to integrate ambulance services. Looking jurisdictionally, 
across the country, the majority of provinces uh, have the planes and the pilots operating uh, through a private provider. What the RFP is calling for is for all of the medical staff on the planes to be public servants. We are taking 60 private providers in road ambulance and making them public. What they are looking at is uh, the planes and the pilots. The medical staff on these air ambulances will remain public servants. The other thing to keep in mind is it is easy for government to acquire hundreds of ambulances and operate them. These ambulances are driven by paramedics and EMRs and ACPs. It's far more complicated and far more costly for government to buy a fleet of helicopters and a fleet of airplanes. So the planes and the pilots um, you know, may be operated at the end of the RFP, may be operated by a, 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 an aviation company, but the medical staff on those planes will be public servants. But would that cost more for the government to make that change than to, than to keep it you know, run by the government? So we've, uh, as part of this process for ambulance integration, we had hired three advisors, a fairness advisor, a technical advisor, and a HEMS advisor. These advisors have looked at jurisdictionally what works best in other areas. Uh, they've looked at what will provide the greatest uh, level of efficiency in terms of coordination of air ambulance and road ambulance through a central command. They've looked at what will provide the best service to the people of Newfoundland and Labrador. And we all have to admit, with a fragmented road ambulance system, each and every operator is working to the best of their ability, but it's fragmented. So there's no central command, there's no coordination. It's not the best system for the, the people of the province, and we see inefficiencies. With seven providers in air ambulance, it is fragmented. It is not providing the best service. Absolutely, the, the uh, pilots and, and uh, aviation staff have done a phenomenal job, and nobody is arguing that. But there are seven different providers, so it's fragmented. It is difficult to make the improvements we need to make. And government can't provide or, or purchase a fleet of, ambulance, uh, of uh, helicopters and airplanes to take the fragmentation out of air ambulance. So, you know, th that, that is the recommendations of the advisors, that this is the best way to proceed. That's what the RFP has identified. At the end of the RFP, we'll see what, what comes out of that. Uh, but we have followed the advice of advisors that have looked at best services in other jurisdictions, not only in Canada, but in other uh, jurisdictions outside of Canada. And we are aiming to provide the best air and road ambulance system to the people of Newfoundland and Labrador. And there you have it. That's Health Minister Tom Osborne responding to Nate President Jerry Earle and the concerns that he's raised about the RFP for the integration of ambulance services. And you can hear more of what Tom Osborne had to say uh, tomorrow morning on your VOCM mornings. Well, now we'll move along to uh, quite a unique fundraiser that is happening in the province and will be running all the way until May. It's being touted as a first-of-its-kind fundraiser in the province in support of EcoPond Environment 
Environmental Education Center. Now, many people in the province might know that facility by another name, the Brother Brennan Center. Uh, the organization is raffling off an electric truck, the 2023 Ford F-150 Lightning, in support of some renovations that they want to do there. Uh, Chief of the Environmental Education Commission, Piers Evans, uh, spoke with me earlier today about the raffle. We're raffling off, we're selling tickets uh, for uh, an electric vehicle, which we were told when we were getting our uh, our lottery license from ServiceNL that this is the first one that they had seen uh, where an EV was being raffled off. Uh, so we're selling tickets uh, for a 2023 uh, F-150 Lightning. Uh, we figured uh, you can't lose uh, with a truck, giving away a truck in Newfoundland. So uh, that's what we're doing, and we're uh, we're raising funds toward the operation of our center. So now, from what I've heard, uh, there are pretty long wait times uh, for people to be able to get their hands on an electric vehicle these days. So how did all of this sort of come together? Yeah, well, we we reached out to um, a couple of dealerships. We knew we wanted to. Um, uh, to go the EV route, uh, it sort of fits with uh, how uh, the Echo Pond Center operates. It's an off-grid center. We um, we gain a lot of our energy through uh, solar and wind systems. Uh, we heat one of the main buildings with uh, a really efficient uh, wood uh, furnace, and uh, so it kind of made sense to go with an electric vehicle. And like you say, we we know that the demand has sort of been there. Uh, so we uh, we reached out to a few de- few dealerships. Um, Avalon Ford uh, got back to us, and uh, they said they were kind of interested in in working with us, and uh, and they've been great uh, so far. Uh, and so this uh, particular uh, vehicle that we're raffling off uh, is actually kind of a, a step above. It's got the extended range battery uh, system on it, so um, it's uh, it's a little bit more uh, kind of higher value. So they're not flying off the shelves as fast as the the base model just because of the added cost but it also makes for a bit of a sweeter prize so now i I went on your website earlier and i noticed that uh the raffle has been ongoing for a couple of weeks what's been the response so far yeah, so it's been a little bit of a sort of friends and family that we've let people know. We we sent it out over our mailing lists to uh, some of our kind of Echo Pond community, the, the people who have, uh, we have the emails for, you know, parents who have sent their kids out to our summer camp program or um, teachers who have uh, taken their classes out to our spring and fall education program. Uh, and uh, we've seen some pretty good interest. Uh, we've done a little bit of advertising over, uh, social media, just sort of Facebook and and uh, Instagram, and uh, we've seen some people kind of uh, click through on those ads as well. Um, but uh, it's a crowded space before the holidays, right? Like it's hard to kind of get people's attention, and uh, so you know the fundraiser goes for another few months yet. So we're hoping to kind of um, start the new year strong and and uh, make this a really successful fundraiser that maybe we could repeat in future years. So we've touched on it a little bit throughout the interview so far, but for those who don't know, um, tell me what the uh, EcoPond Environmental Education Center is all about, what it is you guys do, and where this money will be going. Sure. 
<clears throat> so the Echo Pond uh, Environmental Education Centre was formerly known as the Brother Brennan Centre, and probably a lot of listeners might uh, remember, you know, their time going out there uh, as kids. And so we have a spring and fall uh, school program. Uh, where teachers can um, bring their classes out uh, to the centre for an overnight stay, usually kind of a two-day program. Um, And uh, so the kids and and teachers and, and, you know, parent chaperones all stay out there at the centre. We do um, a real curriculum-based program. So teachers who are bringing their classes out there, they get to kind of like check off a bunch of those curriculum outcomes that they they need to hit through – through their uh, education programs, uh, and we've got fabulous educational staff who uh, run a bunch of very immersive nature-based uh, learning programs. Uh, and then in the summer, uh, since about 2017, we have uh, had the Echo Pond Summer Camp, and that's been a huge success. Um, there's not that many options for sort of, um, you know, week-long stay-out-in-the-woods camps. Uh, and so, and the, the Echo Pond Center really, it really lends itself. You know, so kids are out there um, playing games, crafting, canoeing, swimming, you know, all those sort of classic summer camp uh, programs. Um, and so as far as kind of what we're hoping to do with the funds that we raise through this, um you know, it's been about over 30 years that that center has existed out there. Uh, and it's like I said, it's off-grid. We've done a lot of work to it. But it, uh, it's been sort of like in bits and pieces. What we're hoping to do is uh, some, some more major overhauls and expansions and improvements to the center. Uh, and so for that, obviously, uh, you know, you need a a little bit of funding to uh, to kind of kickstart some of those projects. So we're hoping to make some uh, some big uh, improvements uh, and expansions to the center so that we can accommodate more uh, more kids uh, coming out there. And uh, we also like to make it as financially accessible as possible for our programming. Uh, and so, you know, making sure that we can kind of subsidize uh, students or in some cases entire classes uh, to help uh, make the center that much more accessible, uh, we're going to do that too. Is there a goal for the fundraiser? Uh, we'd like to raise uh, probably two hundred thousand dollars would be our kind of ideal target. We could, uh, I mean, we have enough uh, tickets that we're allowed to sell that we could raise more than that. Uh, but that's the that's the goal. If we can if we can clear two hundred thousand uh, dollars with this fundraiser, that would be um, that would put us in in really good shape to be able to do uh, what we're hoping to do. And Piers, just finally, for those that are just tuning in, give us the details. How much your tickets, and where can people uh, purchase them? Great, yeah. So they can actually go right to our website, echopond.ca. So e c h o p o n d dot c a. Uh, there's a little pop-up that will take you right to our Rafflebox website. So all the tickets are being sold online through the Rafflebox website. Uh, Single tickets are $25, uh, and you can also buy five tickets for $100. And they make great stocking stuffers. Oh, and one final thing. When is the big draw? You mentioned it's a couple months away. It is, yeah. So we're right at the start. The draw is actually right before Mother's Day. So it's in May, May 10th, 2024. Uh, so you can think of this as kind of a, a plan to buy mom a truck.
And there you have it. That's my conversation with Piers Evans uh, talking about uh, a fundraiser for EcoPond Environmental Education Center. You could win a Ford F-150 Lightning. So uh, they're calling that a first-of-its-kind fundraiser in the province, some way of raffling off an electric vehicle. Uh, and again, all the inf- all of the uh, in- information is on the EcoPond Environmental Education Center's website. All right, we're going to take our final break of the day. And when we come back, we'll take you back to a conversation from your VOCM mornings talking about the living wage and what it should be in Newfoundland and Labrador. This is News Talk. Win your Christmas cash with a VOCM Cares for the Community 50-50 draw. Buy your tickets until December 16th at VOCM.com. And welcome back to the program. Well, earlier this morning, the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, Nova Scotia, released a report entitled Newfoundland and Labrador's 2023 Living Wages, seeking a better deal for low-wage workers. The report includes the first province-wide calculation for regionally sensitive living wages in and the rates for four regions. Uh, sorry, the, the rates for the four regions of the province are $23.95 an hour for Central, $24.20 for Eastern, $23.80 for Western, and $26.80 for Labrador and the Northern Peninsula. Dr. Russell Williams, Associate Professor at Memorial University, is one of the authors of the report. He was live on your VOCM Mornings this morning to speak with Jerry Lynn Mackey. Thanks so much for joining us. I laid out some of the information, but what is a living wage and why is it important to know what it is? Yeah, so living wages are a tool that's been used in other provinces in recent years to sort of assess um, how cost of living is affecting the budgets of sort of lower income working households. Um, And this is the first time we've sort of done it here in Newfoundland and Labrador. But what we basically do is instead of the minimum wage, which just sort of requires a statutory wage that everyone has to pay, instead in the living wage, we work backwards from a household budget. We look at sort of an average household. We try and figure out their basic expenses every year, how much it would cost them at a minimum to keep their heads above water. And then we work backwards from that to figure out how much they would have to earn on a full-time hourly basis in order to sustain those costs. And what we get from that essentially is a kind of a gap. We get a gap between what a lot of households actually earn and what they need to earn to uh, manage those expenses. So that's what the living wage is. I like to think of it as being kind of a diagnosis. We use it to sort of assess what's happening in these households, what problems are they encountering and, and what kind of assistance do they need. How did you arrive at the different totals for the different regions of the province? Well, so one of the things we really wanted to do here was to do a regional number in in part because of uh, the situation in Labrador and the Northern Peninsula, which is a little bit unique. But essentially, we look at a basket of standard costs, um, and they vary a bit. Um, Generally, the rate in in our province is fairly similar until we talk about that Labrador-Northern Peninsula uh, cluster, and that's because uh, food and transportation costs are much higher in Labrador and Northern Peninsula, and that means their living wage, how much people need to earn there in order to cover the basic cost of living, is higher than it is for the rest of us on the island here. 
And I know as part of the research for this report, you also held focus groups. Give us an example of the kind of things you were hearing. <laughs> yeah, so and I'm chuckling, but the focus groups, are it's not always done when we do these living wage calculations, but we wanted to do it because it was the first time. And we wanted to kind of talk to people about um, whether the budgets we came up were realistic, right? So <laughs> are these actually the kind of costs you're looking at? And, uh, you know, we got a lot of feedback. We heard a lot that our estimates were too conservative, that essentially, and, and it is the major takeaway in the report, the inflation the last few years, the cost of living increases are really hitting these households hard. People are really struggling uh, to make these basic expenses, and and they're feeling that stress. In fact, uh, the sessions were kind of emotional, right? Uh, people are are in a bad state. Um, they're, they're feeling a bit distressed about the situation. So yeah, we did, we did spend some time trying to talk to people in these households about what kind of problems they're encountering, and, and they identified a lot of things that we needed to pay more attention to. I'm speaking with Dr. Russell Williams, professor of political science at Memorial University and one of the authors of the report we're discussing. Uh, Dr. Williams, what would a living wage mean to low-income working-class people? Well, I think it means different things. I mean, we're talking about an average here and everybody's situation is different. As I said, this is kind of a tool for diagnosis. But I think the thing that came across really clearly to me is that uh, there is a big gap between what a lot of people earn and what they need to earn just to keep their head above water. We have a disproportionately high percentage of people in this province that rely on low-income work in order to make ends meet. And uh, those people are being hit hard by these cost of living increases. And so we have a gap in this province that's larger uh, than we see in many other jurisdictions between what people earn and what they need to earn to basically cover those necessary expenses every year. And what are some of the key recommendations coming out of the report that is called Newfoundland and Labrador's 2023 Living Wages Seeking a Better Deal for Low-Wage Workers? Well, so we make a whole host of recommendations. Um, there's some things, basically there's only two pathways to addressing this problem, this, this growing gap. One is that employers will have to pay more, which means wages uh, need to be higher. Or we need government to do more to target uh, supports for these kinds of households uh, in order to help them manage the cost of living increases. Or we need a combination of those two things. One of the things that we learned in this report that I think is really important is that uh, people in this, this sort of representative household uh, get a better deal in other provinces than they get here. And part of that is because wages are higher in other jurisdictions. So the gap between the cost of living and what people earn isn't quite as big. But part of it is because there's better public policies in place to help low-income households. Uh, there's better child care. There's be- or better access to affordable child care. There's uh, all sorts of mechanisms in the tax system that are designed to make sure low-income households have the money they need in order to manage these kind of expenses. And we see a real difference between, I would say in general, between the Atlantic provinces and the rest of the country, but but a particularly big gap in this province at the moment. So uh, just give you a tangible proposal. One thing that really jumped out to us, and we kind of knew this would be a thing, but was for a lot of the people we talked to, and it really shows up in the data, uh, affordable $10 a day child care. So uh, in other parts of the country, people can access affordable child care. Here in this province, 
it's, it's kind of a myth for most households. They, they can't get it. If they could get it, that would save our, our representative household as much as $6,000 a year in their budget. That's $6,000 less that people in that household have to earn just to make ends meet. Basically, by not providing those kind of supports, which are more readily available in other places, we're really putting these households in a bind in this province. And, and uh, one of the messages that came out of those focus groups is a lot of people who are in this kind of category in this province increasingly believe that there is a better deal for them outside of this province, that they would be better off elsewhere, that they're getting a particularly bad deal. And I, I think that's a message we should really be paying attention to. There we go. Okay, now I'm live. And there you have it, Dr. Russell Williams, Associate Professor at Memorial University on uh, your VOCM mornings this morning, talking with Jerry Lynn Mackey um, about a livable wage. Now, before we go here on the program, we have a bit of late-breaking news here. Uh, off the top, I mentioned how the nominations for the District of Conception Bay East Bell Island were closing for the Liberals at 4 o'clock today. Uh, well, this just came out from the Liberals on Twitter. Uh, now that the nominations have closed, they will be announcing their candidate at a media availability tomorrow afternoon at 4.45 at the Grounds Cafe here in St. John's. Um, so that is, uh, so I guess tomorrow afternoon we're going to find out um We'll find out who the candidate is going to be in the uh, impending by-election for the district of Conception Bay, East Bell Island. And I should say, I, ju I just uh, misspoke. The Grounds Cafe is in Portugal Cove, St. Phillips. Of course, that's where the district is, not here in St. John's. Um, but there you have it. We will have details tomorrow afternoon about who the final piece to that election puzzle will be. And, of course, we'll have all the information for you here on VOCM. Uh, quickly, before I go, I never said hi to Claude Barn today. Hi, Claudette. Hello, Richard. Quite a busy day, so we ne I never had a chance to bring you on, but I you've know. been there in the background keeping me in check. I have, well, and uh, you, me, uh, I just didn't have your volume up earlier. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> We're helping each other out. Yeah, I had yesterday off because I was trying to kind of get some Christmas stuff done. So um, here I am, back panicking like everybody else and trying to get all of their stuff done. <laughs> There you go. We're tag teaming this as always. So just as quickly as I brought Claudette in, Gotta we're go. gonna have to we're gonna have to sign out. Noah Shepard is waiting for the news. Uh, thank you guys so much for tuning in. Uh, somebody will be here tomorrow, whether that's Linda or myself or Brian Callahan. We'll talk to you again tomorrow. Now it's off to Noah with the day in review. <laughs>